This is like a convergence today of, of different things. A lot, uh, and, and you even bring your own stuff, so there's lots of layers of this that not even everybody knows. This is the last day of 2023, and for some, it, it may be a sad farewell. You've had maybe the greatest year of your life. Maybe you've had family members born, you've had, you've had marriages, you've brought people into your family, whatever, and, and you're just like, man, I don't, want the, I don't want to see the year go, I want this to continue. I just want it to, uh, as, the, as the clock rolls around, the calendar turns over, I want everything to keep going like it was. You like that momentum, but for others, it's good riddance, right? You're like, I just can't wait to get out of this. And hopefully, maybe the changing of the calendar will mean changing of circumstances. Yes, your deductible will switch over, right? But hopefully this year you won't meet your deductible anyway. Getting time, distance away from stuff that happens that is unpleasant, distressing, unfortunate, does help with the recovery process, but regardless of what you're feeling about that, the calendar is going to turn and it feels appropriate and right for us to be gathered like this on this Sunday and it has a powerful symbolic meaning to us. We are going to end this year with our God and like he does every time a new week starts, God says, I want you to meet with me on the first day of the week. It's like I want to reorder your life and get things right at the very beginning. Well, here at the end, we can get things right, and as the new starts come midnight tonight, maybe, maybe what we're doing here is saying, Lord, we just want to know we're doing this right as this new year starts. I want us to be like Moses when he met with God on the mountain. You know the story. He led them so triumphantly out of Egyptian slavery with all those dramatic scenes that the people witnessed, crossing the Red Sea, all that. Then they get to the Mount of Transfiguration, and God says, I really want a relationship with you. I, I want you to be my people. I've already been your God. I've redeemed you already. Now I want you to agree to be in relationship with me, and the people say, yes, we want to. But you know what happened. They quickly sinned and fell away so drastically that God says, I want to destroy them. That's what the passage says. And here's the first verse. They have turned aside. This is God speaking to Moses while Moses is on the mountain. He's not even with them. He's above the people. But God already knows what's happening down there. It's already breaking his heart. It says they've sinned. They've turned aside already within a few days of making that covenant with me. And they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who led you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. It's a stiff-necked people. I love that word. You're going to hear it a lot. You're going to hear it a lot this morning in the first, the first sermon, right? Stiff-necked. You know, you ever felt stiff-necked? You sleep wrong on that pillow and it just the whole day it's with you. That's not what this means. It means they're a stubborn, stubborn people. They bow up and they, we're going to do it our way, not God's way. These people are stiff-necked. So, Moses, back up. I'm going to let my wrath burn against these people. I'm going to consume them all. I'm going to fry them all right now. And I'm going to start over with just you. God was angry. Can you tell? And so Moses immediately goes into uh, arguing 
negotiating with God. Moses implored the Lord as God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people that you brought out of the land of, of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? You've, done, you've gone to a lot of trouble to bring them out here. Why should the Egyptians now say, Well, it's because of this. He wanted to, come, he wanted to bring them out there and just fry them all out here, right? And consume them from the face of the earth. So turn from your anger. Moses is negotiating with God, actually arguing with God. Turn away from your anger. Relent from this disaster you've mentioned. Next screen. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, remember what you've promised in the past. And the Lord relented from the disaster. He changed his mind based on the argument Moses made. And, but, but, but then he went on to say in chapter 33 that, that, that I'm, I, I can't lead these people. The Lord then said to Moses, depart, go up from here. I want you, you and the people, I want you to lead them. I want you to bring them to the, the land, from out of the land of Egypt, the land to which I'm bringing them, the land of all those people, right? I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not going to be present with them. You get that? I will drive out all that, but I will not go up among you, or I will consume you on the way. I can't go 10 minutes with these people without wanting to absolutely get frustrated because they're stiff-necked. There's that word again, stiff-necked. They just refuse. Stubborn is the word we would use. But Moses isn't content with this either, and he stays in there with God, and he argues with God. He won't accept an intermediary. There's a lot of people who are infatuated with angels. They'll come up and say, I want a sermon series on angels. I want to study on angels. And there's nothing wrong with them. I'm not like against them. You know, I'm not against angels. I'm not against that. But I'm just not much interested in them. And I'm not a person. I'm like Moses because Moses ends up saying, I don't want an angel. I'll settle for nothing less than God himself. Are you that way? I don't want an angel. I want God to be with me. And that's what he says here. It says, of Moses, after God had passed by and showed him himself, he bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped and he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, let the Lord go in the midst of this people. I won't go unless you go. And he uses the same argument. God had said, because they're stiff-necked, I would kill them, I can't go. Moses says, because they're stiff-necked, they need you badly. Because they're stiff-necked, God, don't desert them. In fact, their stiff-neckedness means they need you even worse. We're much like the nation of Israel. Here they were nomads going through the wilderness. We're kind of nomads. We sing all the time, this world is not my home. This isn't where we belong. We're just kind of nomads through this earth. We're going to the promised land. And those same two dangers that overtook Israel so many times threaten us. One of them is we have no idea what life's going to bring us. There are some here right now who will not be here 365 days from now. You're not going to be here to finish up 2023. How do I know that? Because every year we lose some. There are some that are going to face incredible things that you have no idea right now what's in store for you in 2024. And if you knew it, you would tremble. But you don't even know it. There are some good things that are going to happen. And I figure all of us are going to have some good things. And then we're going to have some challenges. Because that's how life is. And you don't know where they are. You're ignorant of most of them right now. And so how do you know right now that you can handle them? And there's a second thing. Is there, is there anybody in here that would acknowledge and admit that not only is life hard sometimes with the things that happen, but sometimes you are stiff-necked. 
Are there any stiff-necked people in here? Would you raise your hand if you're stiff-necked? I, I think most of you know. I just kind of do it my way. Yeah, I know what God would have me do, but I, I really want to do my own way right here, and I'm stiff-necked, and I rise up, and I do things my way, and I get some of my greatest trouble is caused by me, not life. Those same two things were operating as Israel's going through the wilderness. And here's what Moses knew before the journey even started. Whatever happens, God, I don't know what these people will do. I don't know what we will do. I don't know what I will do. But here's what I know. I won't go into this without you being present with me. And I hope what we're saying this morning as we meet here on this wonderful, in this wonderful hill, right, that's paid for. We won't go a day without the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ leading us in His great sovereign power and His eternal wisdom and His great compassion and mercy. We want Him to be our leader. So on this last day of the year, let's thank God for leading us and let's petition God, even now together in song, to march into that new year for us, before us, with us, leading us, guiding us, and giving us what it takes to handle whatever happens. There's um, something else we're acknowledging today, as uh, you're surely all aware of by now. The debt the church has incurred over the years from this building, the property, some other things, is now being retired. And so we march into 2024 with the debt of past actions now erased. I uh, texted Nate um, Watson the other day for something else. Uh, they used to attend here, and now they live in Searcy. But he works for the bank over there in Newport, where I think Randy apparently, Randy Simpkins apparently was able to like arm wrestle them into a great interest rate back a, a few years ago. But uh, he, he told me that I just received a visit just a couple days ago from Terry and Mitchell. I said, well, I'm sorry. Um, not for Terry, just for Mitchell. But um, because, you know, once in a while, when, you, when your day is interrupted with a visit from Mitchell Fitz, it just... Um, but he ended that text by saying, how exciting to be mortgage-free. It really is, isn't it? It's quite an amazing feat, and it's right to feel the excitement from it. But I'm going to tell you, this is, a, this is an excitement that we should experience often as Christians, right? I mean, every time we gather around the table, aren't we celebrating that we are mortgage-free, debt-free in, in our lives? Most of us, at some point in our lives as adults, have to have to utilize a mortgage to buy a house. It's part of life, and a lot of people don't think anything of it. They just sign the papers and they go on. But as a person who overthinks things, can I tell you, a mortgage is a terrifying experience. You sign your name, and what you're saying is, for the next 20, 30 years, every single month, I will pay this huge chunk of money to you in order to be able to live right now physically enjoying this home. And you begin to think to yourself, at least I did, some people don't, but I begin to think to myself, what if, what if I lose my job? What if I get injured and can't make, what? and I finish this what if line with any number of other things? There's so many things that could happen that would make this really be bad. A mortgage is a fine line between a wonderful tool and a foolish exercise. And that's where we live. But many people, most people do it, and we get used to it so much that we can go to sleep at night even though it's a scary proposition. And I think about that time several. 
There was a group of men a few years ago, the elders of the church back then, who decided we need to buy this property on this hill. It was some prime property. It cost a lot. And then to undertake the building of a massive building like this. And they signed the line, which meant they were on the hook for this. Yes, the church was going to be paying this off over the years, but really the ones on the hook were those elders who signed that paper. And they were sitting there thinking, what were they... I just think $5 million, I believe, over the, by the time it's all said and done. How enormous a toll that would take on you, the stress that could potentially be on you. And so today, they were thinking much beyond today. They were thinking of what this church will do in the future, but they were certainly thinking of this day several years ago when this is finally retired how satisfying it must be that that's paid off and that now instead of the stress and wonder now what can be there is the joy and satisfaction that makes me think of a passage second corinthians chapter 5 where i asked you to go and this is i want to give you a couple of things first of all paul is comparing our life here on earth as life in a tent a temporary residence that moves around our human existence our fleshly life is like a tent where we really want to be is our permanent home once in a while i hear some of you when you're building your house this is our forever home no it's not Nothing in this life is your forever home. Your forever home is an eternity with God. That's where, you're, that's where you long to be. That's what Paul's going to say. We're going to read it here in just a minute, but I want you to understand what he's saying. Our lives in this flesh is a tent where we want to be is a permanent dwelling we will be in for eternity. So keep that in mind as we read this passage. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, you die... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's believers. Unbelievers, by the way, have a home too. It's permanent too, but it's not there. It's another place that's not so good. But every person living in a tent will eventually move into a house, a permanent dwelling. And for Christians, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. In this fleshly body, we groan, longing to put on that heavenly dwelling. We want to be permanently somewhere. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, we are burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, fully clothed as we're supposed to be, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. We long for our permanent residence. It's a little bit like a mortgage, but it's a whole lot unlike a mortgage. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, if you look down on that, we're gonna be judged for everything we do in this tent. Everything we do in this tent has a bearing on the house that we live in. So let me give you just the contrast here, okay? How we are unlike a mortgage. We can't have our home until Christ returns. You remember what Christ said before he left? I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and get you so that you can be where I am. We don't get to live in this house. Like our mortgage, we get to live in the house even though we don't fully own it yet. But in the, in the spiritual sense, it's not like that. We have a home already. You have a home reserved for you, but you can't have it yet. You have to live in this tent a little while longer, but that house is provided for you. There is a permanent dwelling. A second thing that it's unlike is this. The mortgage payment is required, but you won't be the one who pays it. 
You do have to pay off this house. There is a mortgage to this permanent home you're longing to have. But look at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He goes on to say, Christ's love compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. There is a person who died to buy that house and it wasn't you, but you through him died. He did it for you. He paid that off for you. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. The way he did it is verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The mortgage is required, but it's already been paid. A third thing. While you cannot live in that new home yet, you still live right now as if you did. You live by the qualities of home from now on, verse 16, we regard no one from a, according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded even Christ that way, we regard him no longer that way. Therefore, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has already passed away. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You don't have the new home yet, but you know you've got it, and you live according to that way of life. Now I want to pause here. I added, Paul added a couple slides for me. I want to show you how this works. This is how many people think of it. Here's our tent. This is our life in this world, temporary, transient. And that's our permanent home. Okay, that's, that's just a picture of a home. That's what I'm saying. Here's what a lot of people think. This passage is saying how I live in this tent helps me pay off. That's what the arrow means. It helps me pay off and earn that home in the next. This is not true. And we in churches of Christ sometimes come across this way. I sometimes come across this way. I don't want to be understood that way. How you live in this tent is not the mortgage payment for this house. It's not that. But there is a connection between how we live in this tent and that house. I don't want to completely say, well, it doesn't matter how you live in this tent. You're going to have that. I don't want to say that either. So here's the other slide. Here's what I want you to see. So the tent, the arrow that doesn't have an arrow, it's just a line. The tent is where you live right now. And God, through his grace, when you submit to the Lordship of Christ, he gives you the house. And because you have the house, that entire new identity directly impacts how you live in the tent. You start changing the way you live, not in order to pay off the house, but because God gave it to you. You will live a different kind of life. All because Christ gives you this amazing home based on his grace through the blood of Jesus. And that's what he's saying in this passage. It will have a bearing on your life, but you're not paying off the house. You are not paying off the mortgage. You do not have to live your life as if, if I slip up, I'm going to cost myself the house. No, it's because you already have the house that you start living different in this life. It's a different kind of thinking. And we're going to be talking about this in 2024 early on because it's an important thought. There's a fourth thing to say about this, and that's what he says at the end of this passage when he says... All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, 
And he has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. He wants us to share with people this amazing mortgage plan that is unlike any on earth. It is so different that it's hard to fathom. But here it is. God has already paid off the mortgage. Trust in him. Let him give you the house and let him change your life. And that's what we want to say to people in the world. So we're going to burn the mortgage today. We're going to burn it. But there's something even greater that we celebrate every day of our lives. The mortgage of that forever home that is ours, that we long for, that shapes everything about our life, that's already been paid for fully by the body and the blood of Jesus. We access his body broken and his blood shed. We access the benefits of that through baptism as he washes that debt away. And we gather around the table every single week to remember that on that cross, he nailed our record of indebtedness to that cross. It never was burned, it was nailed. That mortgage was nailed. That indebtedness was nailed. And every Sunday, you gather around the table to remember what he's done, to be full of gratitude, that you don't carry the debt with you, and you walk out of here reminded of how you're debt-free. It's not because it wasn't paid, it's because it wasn't paid by you. It was very much paid at great cost. How are you supposed to respond to that? When those elders today take that record of indebtedness and they burn that because it's no longer against us, how do you think they'll feel? How should we feel? Should it not lighten the load? Should it not motivate more activity? Should it not just generate such gratitude and appreciation that we just continue to do the work of the church from off this hill with a paid-for building? Doesn't that do that? Well, that's what we are doing as we gather around the table this morning. We're reminded we were in debt, but we aren't anymore because someone paid the debt for us. And we're reminded every week when sometimes we feel unnecessary guilt, quit feeling the guilt. Feel the motivation and the joy that fuels obedience, not out of indebtedness like I'm paying something off, but out of gratitude for something that's already been paid off. That's why we're gathering around the table today. We're going to sing two songs in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Let's sing together. Perhaps there's someone here who's ready to make Jesus Lord of their life. Uh, he's the one who made the payment for your debt of sin too. It just doesn't apply to you until the Holy Spirit applies it to you through the waters of baptism. It's there for you. There's no reason to bypass it. There's no reason to have to face that on your own. It's been offered in abundance. Just accept it. Maybe you're ready to march into a new year unhindered by that sin that just so easily entangles you, keeps you from being free. Well, there's mo this morning you have a chance to confess that you are a sinful person, to repent and make a change and make Jesus Lord of your life. Proclaim a new ruler in charge of your life. It's a great time to enter the waters of baptism, walk out new. It's sort of like instead of burning the debt, it's drowning the debt. Not because of magical water, but because your belief that Jesus offered it and wants to apply it to your life through his spirit.
If you're ready for your mortgage to be paid, the Lord awaits you, and we encourage you to do that as we stand and sing.